Hey, what's up, Seekers? Welcome back. Baruch Spinoza is known as many things. One of the 17th century's leading rationalist philosophers, a proto-enlightenment thinker, the father of modern biblical criticism, and an early advocate for the separation of church and state, religious tolerance, democratic governance, and the freedom of thought and expression. Philosophically, he's known for his dual aspect monism, his pantheism and immanentism, his determinism and radical views on human nature. But one of the most unusual labels that Spinoza has picked up over the years is that of a mystic. In this fourth episode of our Spinoza series, I'd like to explore the reasons why Spinoza has been labeled as such, specifically looking at the claim that Spinoza's third kind of knowledge, and the state of mind that it leads to, might be mystical in nature. And to answer that question, we're going to try to explain the most difficult part of an already difficult book, the last section of Spinoza's Ethics, the 42 propositions of the fifth and final chapter of his great work, which commentators have affectionately called disjointed, impenetrable, and frustrating. Despite accusations of being unconnected to the painstakingly elaborated metaphysics, epistemology, psychology, and moral philosophy that preceded it in the ethics, we will endeavor here to show why indeed the last chapter of his great work, as difficult as it is, represents not just a continuation, but the culmination of Spinoza's philosophy, containing profound and illuminating insights on knowledge, happiness, freedom, and salvation. If you'd like some more context and content on Spinoza, his metaphysics, theology, psychology, and epistemology, make sure to check out the first three videos in this series. I'll post a link to them down in the description here beneath the video for your convenience. And if you're interested in the history and philosophy of mysticism, please do check out some more of the content here on the channel. And if you like what you see, make sure to subscribe and say hi down in the comments. Welcome. What even is mysticism is a good question, and one that literally keeps me up at night, often, and one which we're trying to answer here at the channel together. I hope to make a series specifically directed to that question, after we finish this current pantheism series, where we'll dig into the etymology of the word, the history of its usages, its competing definitions, theoretical approaches to the study of it as a field, and much, much more. I'm looking forward to that and very excited for it, I hope you are too. But in lieu of a definitive definition, we can say that whatever mysticism it is, it comprises of at least three components, excluding the historical and social components that encase it, and bracketing the ontological reality, the source or ground of being that it might point to as a whole. These three components, which I've taken from Peter Moore's fantastic essay in the Encyclopedia of Religion, are components we're fond of employing here at the channel when trying to talk about mysticism in a systematic way. These three components are mystical experience, theories, and practices. Alternatively, the experiential, theoretical, and practical sides of mysticism. We're not going to get into the details of these three categories just at the moment, because we'll have a whole series to do that very soon, don't worry. But I'd like to focus instead here on what might be pertinent to answering the question of the day, is Spinoza a mystic? Or, more precisely framed, is his philosophy mystical? And by mystical, I don't mean eerie, nebulous, weird, or mysterious, but mystical in the proper sense, i.e. pertaining to the experience, theory, or practice of mysticism. This more precise framing of the question may be a little easier to answer because we have access to the primary source in question, namely his philosophical system that he left behind for us in his writings, his theory, 
and it saves us from speculating about him as an individual, his subjective experiences, or his private practices to which we have no access. Insofar then as his theory, his philosophy goes, both his metaphysics and his theology, if we can call it that, show strong themes of what might be properly considered mystical. Both his monistic metaphysics, which the German-Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called the most unified world structure a human mind has ever conceived, and his accompanying pantheistic theology, both his monism and his pantheism, the synchronon of many a mystical system on the theoretical side. But we're not going to repeat those arguments regarding these potentially mystical elements of his philosophy here, because we already covered them at some length in the first two videos of this series, go check them out on your own time. The aspect of Spinoza's philosophy that I'd like to focus on here instead is what we might call his epistemology, or his theory of knowledge. Because one, I think, can be a monist, namely, they can believe that reality is fundamentally one or unified, from the Greek monos, without being a mystic. What I believe differentiates the monist from the mystic, besides what they do with their knowledge, i.e. how they live their lives accordingly, is the question of how they come to said knowledge, both in terms of what techniques and practices they employ, but more specifically for purposes of this discussion, what modes of cognition, what way of thought is employed in acquiring said knowledge. This question, for those keeping track of the aforementioned categories, keeps us within the realm of theory, albeit not purely theory, but theory of experience, i.e. how one theorizes about the experience of the mystic and the way which the experience imparts knowledge to the mystic. What I'd like to suggest here, against the opinion of Stephen Nadler, who admittedly knows Spinoza a lot better than I do and probably ever will, so I should probably shut my mouth right about now and plead the fifth, but what fun would that be? So we're going to have some chutzpah and plow on. By the way, Stephen, if by my lucky stars and by some six degrees of separation magic you're watching this, firstly, I'm a big fan of your work and my apologies for my chutzpah, and secondly, I'd like to take this opportunity to formally invite you here on the channel so you can personally educate me and the audience on what you believe is the correct way to understand this great philosopher, the subject of your admittedly lifelong expertise. But as we were saying, what I'd like to suggest here is that not only does Spinoza's philosophy share tremendous affinity with the general metaphysics and theology of mysticism, but his epistemology, i.e. the way he proposes that an individual can acquire such knowledge, and the state of mind or consciousness which Spinoza proposes an individual may reach through this knowledge in the enigmatic second half of the concluding section of the ethics, likewise shares much in common with the epistemologies found prominently featured in many a mystical system. Part of what makes the conclusion of Spinoza's ethics so puzzling, in Nadler's own admission, is that Spinoza seems to introduce, quote, a religious, even mystical element to the arch-rationalist philosophy of the ethics. The reader, upon reaching the end of the text, is not expecting Spinoza to start discussing blessedness, eternity, salvation, and the love of God. Spinoza's religious language here at the end of his book has certainly divided its readers over the centuries, giving rise to heated debate with avid admiration on one side and rabid rejection on the other. Beginning with its sheer difficulty, Stephen Nadler writes that the notion of the intellectual love of God in part five of Spinoza's ethics is arguably one of the more opaque elements in a work full of opacity. And another esteemed Spinoza scholar, Edward Curley, once admitted that, quote, I do not feel that I understand this part of the ethics at all, I also believe that no one else understands it adequately either. It's a bit audacious for me here to come and tell you what I think this section means, but 
Someone's going to do it. Leibniz, Spinoza's contemporary and a great philosopher in his own right, believed that, quote, what Spinoza said about the intellectual love of God is only a concession to the masses, namely that Spinoza was upset that he would be upsetting people religiously with some of his anti-religious rhetoric, so threw in some candies at the end of his work to placate the masses. A bit of a different employment of religion as the opiate of the masses. And while the American philosopher Morris Raphael Cohen professed his admiration saying that the doctrine of the intellectual love of God is the central doctrine in Spinoza's philosophy and an ideal which may still serve as a beacon to illuminate current tendencies in life and thought, another contemporary philosopher, Jonathan Bennett, called the end of the ethics an unmitigated and seemingly unmotivated disaster, containing nothing but error and confusion, rubbish which causes others to write rubbish, and concludes that this part of the ethics has nothing to teach us and is pretty certainly worthless. Talk about a harsh review, yikes. Let us try stay therefore open-minded, aware of the discussion, and unprejudiced as we try to dissect this most difficult section, and hopefully, keeping in that spirit of honest inquiry, we will stay away from writing more worthless rubbish. Nadler himself, by the way, is of the opinion that Spinoza has not gone soft on us, having fallen back into a religious mode grounded in his own personal mystical experience, but rather, just as he provided God, and related theological concepts with a naturalistic and rationalistic reading in the metaphysics of the earlier parts, so the eternity of the mind and the intellectual love of God are given a proper Spinozistic interpretation in part 5. Regardless of whether one is titillated or appalled by Spinoza's religious language, I think this question of what Spinoza intends with this language, and particularly his talk of this intellectual love of God, is a fascinating and important question. Fascinating for anyone who's in love with exploring Spinoza's philosophy in relation to philosophical mysticism, as we are, but beyond just the study of Spinoza and his thoughts and thinking, I think it's an important question independently, one which may just shed some refracted light on the thinking of mysticism as a whole, and being that mysticism seems to be innate and native to the human organism and species, it may just show us something insightful about the human experience as a whole. So, these are the five points concerning Spinoza's epistemology that I would like to elucidate in this presentation. The first will be content, an attempt to introduce Spinoza's third kind of knowledge and find out what it consists of, followed secondly by method, a questioning of whether this kind of knowledge is rational for Spinoza. Third will be amor, exploring its relationship to a certain state of mind, which Spinoza calls amor dia intellectualis, an intellectual love of God. Fourth shall be the question of extent, a look at the extent and the reach of this knowledge according to Spinoza. Fifth will be qualia, the state of mind that Spinoza believes this knowledge engenders. And we will conclude after a short summary with what I believe may be one way of understanding Spinoza's mysticism. In the previous video, we began to present Spinoza's epistemology, which comprises of three kinds of knowledge. The first, distorted perception or opinion, sometimes called imagination, the source of inadequate ideas according to Spinoza. The second, an adequate form of knowledge, that which is procured by reason. Check out the previous video for more on those two categories. Spinoza's third and final kind of knowledge, which we'll be focusing on here today, is what he calls scientia intuitiva, intuitive knowledge. 
Spinoza begins by describing this kind of knowledge as that which, quote, proceeds from an adequate idea of certain attributes of God to an adequate knowledge of the essence of things. This description may not make much sense if you haven't watched the first video of this series where we unpacked Spinoza's metaphysics, and to be honest, there's still a very good chance that it wouldn't have made much sense even if you had, but Spinoza, when translated into plain English, seems to be saying that if one has a comprehensive understanding of the laws of nature and consequently understands the inbuilt necessity and chain of causality linking and determining all things as naturally as one understands that three conjoint signs will necessarily make up a triangle, that person, as a result, is able to have an intuitive knowledge of how each particular thing in existence derives naturally and automatically through their causes from nature itself, which Spinoza, remember, also calls God. That in the adequate comprehension of the essence of an individual thing, it is seen as it truly is, within the context of the totality of existence, the eternal and infinite nature of the essence of God. This, it seems, is what Spinoza means when he says that with this knowledge one comes to know how the essence of the particular thing derives and follows necessarily from the essence of God. To say the same thing in a bit more Spinozistic jargon for the diehard Spinoza fans out there, in this third kind of knowledge, the individual in their intuitive insight apprehends how the essence of each finite mode is nothing other than the essence of God, substance or nature, as mediated through the attributes of thought and extension. This third state of knowledge, dare we say gnosis, is one in which we truly come to know ourselves as well, as we too are nothing but a mode of substance, and in doing so understand ourselves within the natural order in which we live, move, and have our being, and of which we are indelibly a part, all the way from the air that we breathe, to the nutrients we consume, and the tides that affect our moods, all the way to the deepest immediate cause from which all things flow, namely God. As Spinoza writes, since it is clear that the more the mind understands itself, the more it understands of nature, it is evident that this understanding will be more perfect as the mind understands more things, and will be most perfect when the mind attends to reflect on knowledge of the most perfect being, i.e. God. If you are not yet already on the edge of your seat, because of the implications of the content of this third knowledge, as related to mysticism, allow me to spell it out for you. Spinoza here is proposing the possibility of a vision of reality which sees things not as separate, atomistic, ontologically distinct entities, each with their own separate minds or ideas, fundamentally other in the perception of this fractured splinter of time, itself broken off from the moments preceding and succeeding it, never to return subspecies temporalis, Spinoza is opening us up instead to the possibility of a unified vision, one which perceives the interdependence and interconnectedness of all things, both causally, as part of this one innumerably large organism called nature, and the capacity to perceive all things in their true timeless state, beyond the mask of modality, as substantially one and unified in God, subspecies eternitatis, under the aspect of eternity what's beginning to sound like a magnificent, unified vision of reality. Things are already starting to sound quite mystical, wouldn't you agree? But instead of just running with vibes and hunches, let us ask some real questions that will either confirm or falsify this conjecture. As we said earlier, one of the litmus tests to determine whether a method of obtaining knowledge is properly mystical is whether the methodology itself is rational or immediate slash unmediated. For the sake of this discussion, and for the sake of not going down the rabbit hole of attempting to define rationality here as well, let us understand the word rational here to mean 
that which is based on or in accordance with reason. And for the nerds in the crowd, yes, we're talking about epistemic rationality, not instrumental rationality, obviously. Now, just to be clear, we're not discussing right now if the conclusions of mysticism are rational, but rather if the methods employed to reach said conclusions are rational in their methodology. Allow us here to distinguish then between the knowledge or information itself and the method, the cognitive process by which that knowledge is procured. Our focus here being on the latter, the method of procurement. And on that question, I think we can safely say that the answer is no. Mysticism is not rational in its epistemic methodology, in that it's typically epistemologically based on direct experience rather than on a delineated process of reasoning. And that is, as we said earlier, what distinguishes mysticism from related forms of, say, philosophical monism. Again, just to be clear, it may indeed be rational to follow the evidence of one's direct experience, in that there's valid reason to believe the content of one's own direct experience, given the correct circumstances, and in that sense, the conclusions that mysticism comes to may very well be rational, and I, for one, as of the date of recording this, am certainly persuaded as such, but again, that is not the question here. The question is, is the methods of procuring that knowledge rational? To which we think the answer is no. Now, the question at hand here is, is Spinoza's third kind of knowledge, his scientia intuitiva, this intuitive knowledge, is it a rational form of knowing something? Or is it something other than rational, perhaps more akin to the direct episteme of mysticism? So, despite A, some disagreement among scholars, and B, that I am no scholar, I'm still going to weigh in here and say that no, this third knowledge for Spinoza cannot be accurately described as rational. The simple reason I say that is because it seems that knowledge gleaned in this third kind of knowledge is not achieved via a gradual, incremental, discursive, deductive, logical, or analytical process for the simple reason that if it were, it would not belong to the third kind of knowledge, but it would rather belong to Spinoza's second kind of knowledge, knowledge procured precisely by reason. This third intuitive form of knowledge, where the essence of the nature of reality is apprehended by the individual, seems rather to be reached in a fell swoop, in a single moment of insight, which, to be clear, is certainly built upon the foundations of the logical, conceptual, rational reasoning of the second kind of knowledge, but must definitionally transcend it, and more than just numerically. Not that it abandons reason, or is necessarily anti-rational, but it seems to build upon the second, upon reason, bringing it to a climax and crescendo in a single, intuitive, perspicacious moment of mental clarity, a vision through the depths of the particular into the grandeur of the whole in a way that reason itself cannot reach. We might perhaps best describe it as irrational, as opposed to irrational for those reasons. For the rationalists listening, who are starting to get a bit uncomfortable, my apologies, but it's probably only going to get worse from here. Although at no point, as we said, does Spinoza abandon his rationality, quite to the contrary, Spinoza's unique ability to fill classical religious and mystical terminology with the rational content of his thought is truly breathtaking, as Stephen Adler points out. As we shall see shortly, the way that Spinoza amalgamates and combines a Maimonidean rationalistic Aristotelianism with a Stoic, Neoplatonic, perhaps even Kabbalistic mysticism is pretty baller. To Spinoza, as we're starting to see, this third kind of knowledge is more than just another rational way of knowing things. Spinoza, in fact, describes this knowing as a state of mind, a state of consciousness. And, to the dismay of perhaps the called, calculated rationalist, Spinoza describes this state as a state of love, a love for God, and a more die intellectualis, an intellectual love for God. Spinoza's word choice here is as intentional 
as it is bizarre. This love language is puzzling from the pen of Spinoza, a man who seems quite dismissive of the prospect of loving God. As he writes quite memorably in the Ethics, one who loves God cannot strive that God should love them in return. For, writes Spinoza, God is without passions, neither is God affected by any emotion of pleasure or pain. Strictly speaking, God does not love anyone. In fact, for Spinoza, to hope for God to love one in return is something which God cannot do, therefore it cannot be God loving you. It's a self-defeating kind of catch-22 situation. Yet the very same Spinoza in the very same book also tells us that one who clearly and distinctly understands themselves and their emotions loves God. And shockingly, not only is this love which Spinoza calls elsewhere a constant and eternal love of God, warranted according to Spinoza, it is even reciprocated by God. In fact, it is the very love by which God loves God's self and with which God loves mankind. As Spinoza writes, we'll explain this all in a second, don't worry, the intellectual love of the mind towards God is the very love of God by which God loves God's self. For the love of God towards humans and the human's intellectual love of God are identical. If Spinoza has gotten you scratching your head here, don't worry, we will explain what's going on. According to Spinoza, we and everything we encounter are the modes of reality, nothing but the modifications of substance, i.e. the parts of God. Although parts here may be the wrong word because God slash substance doesn't really have parts, but we'll leave that for the moment. Therefore, when we come to truly know a thing, or ourselves, we come to know it as it is in God. For, as Spinoza tells us, nothing can either be nor be conceived apart from God. And, fully knowing the essence of the particular allows us a glimpse into the essence, the nature of God itself, what we might call the nature of nature. As Spinoza writes, the more we understand particular things, the more we understand God. Remember that for Spinoza, the words God and nature are interchangeable, Deus siv natura, God or nature, as he so laconically puts it. Spinoza's thought at this point takes a fascinating turn. In a move borrowed both conceptually and linguistically from a host of Jewish medieval philosophers, including but not limited to Grishanides, Chaste Kreskas, Yoda Barvenel, and Avraham Shalom, in whose work Neve Shalom, the phrase intellectual love of God appears in Hebrew for what may very well be the first time, Ahava Elokit Sichlit. But the most significant predecessor for Spinoza's conception of this love of God, as he is for many Spinozistic concepts, is the early 12th century Jewish-Spanish philosopher who's seen by most as a very non-mystical philosopher, even as an anti-mystic, a question which I hope to devote at least a full episode to in the near future, a philosopher whose main work, The Guide to the Perplex, according to the Spinoza scholar Stephen Nadler, literally laid open on the table in front of Spinoza as his ethics was being written, you know who it is, the Great Eagle, a.k.a. the Rambam, a.k.a. from Moses to Moses. No one dropped it like our man Moses. Moses Maimonides. Spinoza here, alongside Maimonides, says that this way of knowing that we're speaking of is loving. For sometimes to know a thing is to love it. And in the case of God for Maimonides, to love God was to know God. And yes, the order was intentionally switched there. Because for Maimonides, loving God, which incidentally one is obligated to do in Judaism, as per Deuteronomy 6.5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might, can only be mandated and fulfilled through a contemplation of and the knowledge of God. This love, writes Maimonides, is proportionate to the intellectual apprehension of God. Thus, it is clear that a person ought to aim to have constant love and devotion towards God through the apprehension of the intellect. And Maimonides defines this apprehension 
as knowing everything concerning all beings that is within the capacity of the human to know in accordance with their ultimate perfection. Sounds kind of spinozistic, doesn't it? Which, in simple English, means that through a contemplation of the wondrous creations of God, all the particular things of existence, through apprehending and appreciating the natural world, science and all, God's handiwork, one comes to know God and, in proportion to their knowledge, love God. And this, for both Maimonides and Spinoza, although phrased slightly differently, is the correct path to eudaimonia, to true human flourishing and happiness, more on that in a moment. And here comes the second twist. Not only is it through knowing and loving particular things that we come to love God, seeing each as an expression of the one thing truly worth knowing and loving, the one eternal, immutable, and infinite thing in existence, the only thing in existence, God. Moreover, in that love, we come to love ourselves because we come to see that we too are nothing other than God. But most impressively, since God is the only thing in existence, not only is God the only thing which one can know and love, God is also the only thing that can do the knowing and loving. And hence, in this love of God, God loves God's self, because who or what else is there in existence to do the loving, and what else is there to be loved? QED. For, as writes Maimonides, God is the knowing, the knower, and the known, and as many a mystic have echoed, she likewise is the loving, the lover, and the loved. And that is why Spinoza says that the love of God towards humans and the human's intellectual love towards God are identical because there is only one love, excuse the cliché. To quote Spinoza's own jargony words, the human mind is part of the infinite intellect of God. Thus, when we say that the human mind perceives this or that, we are saying nothing but that God, insofar as God constitutes the essence of the human mind, has this or that idea. And therefore, on the same logic, when the human mind loves God, it is God insofar as it constitutes the essence of the human mind, which is loving God's self. Back to the poetic for a moment. Knowing yourself, God knows all things. Loving yourself, God loves all things. Spinoza, however, takes this thought beyond where Maimonides was willing to go with it, and perhaps even beyond where any philosopher preceding him was willing or capable to go. Spinoza claims that through this form of perception, one can at least in principle attain to a perfect and adequate knowledge of God. As he repeats unequivocally in part 2, propositions 46 and 47, the human mind has an adequate knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God. For in God there is necessarily an idea both of God's essence and of everything that necessarily follows from God's essence. Spinoza believes that in this third kind of knowledge, in this intuitive, direct perception of reality, the mind discovers God, God's infinite essence. In Spinoza's own words, both the essence as it is to itself, and as it manifests as the imminent cause of power of each particular thing. What Hasidic mysticism might later comparably refer to as etem keshula and koya chaperl bahanifal, the essence of God as it is to itself, and the imminent causal power of the actualizer in the actualized, of God in the thing, to use simple English. Spinoza's epistemological hubris here, his belief in the capacity of the human mind to adequately comprehend all of nature and the essence of God is, in Stephen Nadler's own opinion, unprecedented and unrivaled in all the philosophy preceding Spinoza. No other philosopher in history has been willing to make this claim, writes Nadler. 
However, we might add that despite the philosophers making no such claim, the mystics, in their more brazen, cataphatic moments, do indeed claim to knowledge of the essence of God, the divine Dingansich, the numinous reality, via a loving, intimate knowledge, knowledge by identification, indeed, self-knowledge. Is it mere coincidence that Spinoza, in his most audacious epistemological claims, finds no company among his fellow philosophers, but plenty among the mystics? Perhaps not. Allow us to make one more comparison to mysticism before we conclude, in which we shall again argue that far from being another mode of mere rational or scientific thinking, incrementally advancing from the second rational mode, Spinoza, in proposing his third kind of knowledge, seems to be giving us something qualitatively other, a quantum leap for the human mind. To make this case, I'd like to highlight two bizarre things that Spinoza has to say about this third kind of knowledge. One is its ultimacy, and the second its eternality. For it is on these two points that those arguing for a purely rational epistemology seem the shakiest. Let's begin then with ultimacy. The third kind of knowledge, or more precisely, state of mind, plays a pivotal, nay salvific role in Spinoza's thinking. Spinoza indeed sees it as the highest state of perfection available to the human mind, the mind's greatest good, in Spinoza's words. As Spinoza writes, the greatest striving of the mind and its greatest virtue is understanding things by the third kind of knowledge. And one who knows things by this kind of knowledge passes to the greatest human perfection. Spinoza goes even further, saying that in this state of knowledge and love of God consists our freedom, salvation, and what he calls our blessedness. As he writes, from what has been said, we clearly understand wherein our salvation or blessedness or freedom consists, namely, in a constant and eternal love of God, or in God's love for mankind. And elsewhere, more iconically, he writes, blessedness is the eternal perfection of the intellect. When one's thinking is saturated by intuition, saturated by this love, one attains a state of serenity and freedom from the passions, the true mark of wisdom. As Spinoza writes, the mind rejoices in this divine love or blessedness, and, as he so beautifully puts it, blessedness is not the reward of virtue, but virtue itself. This state of knowing, this intellectual love of God, according to Spinoza, is our understanding of the universe and our place in it. It is our virtue, our happiness and our blessedness, our well-being and our salvation, and the highest possible degree of joy that the human mind can reach, an eternal joy. For, as we explained in the previous episode, in this way of knowing and being lies our freedom and autonomy insofar as Spinoza, a thoroughgoing determinist, can use those words, because when we come to understand reality this way, what happens happens not to us, but by us, by God, by our very own nature. In the words of Spinoza, the one who has attained the state of ultimate perfection is hardly troubled in spirit, but being by a certain eternal necessity, conscious of themselves, and of God, and of things, never ceases to be, but always possesses true peace of mind. And with this newfound equanimity, freed from the nagging of the passions, we are liberated to do only that which we most deeply believe in, and pursue that which we find to be, quote, the most important thing in life, which Spinoza and Maimonides, among many a philosopher and mystic, tells us, is to come to know God, an infinite and never-ending endeavor after the truth, after reality, after ourselves, and after love, to cultivate a love towards a thing immutable and eternal, which we, in reality, already fully possess, and which cannot be tainted by any of the vices found in ordinary love. A love which Spinoza teaches is eternal and omnipresent, 
as he writes explicitly, the intellectual love of God, which arises from the third kind of knowledge, is eternal. Having established the ultimacy of this state for Spinoza, we will now transition to our discussion of the second point here, that of eternality. Spinoza here, in the previous quote it seems, intends not that the state of love, joy, or bliss itself is eternal, experientially, for the individual, but rather that because this knowledge and accompanying state of love is true, i.e. the true state of reality, it is therefore eternal in that it always is and was and therefore is always accessible to the individual who discovers that ever-present truth. Much like perhaps the way that many mystics, particularly Eastern mystics, are fond of saying that we are and always have been enlightened, but we just don't know it. As Spinoza himself writes, the mind has had eternally the same perfection which in our fiction now comes to it. And himself admits a little earlier that, quote, for an easier explanation and better understanding of the things we wish to show, we will pretend as if it were now beginning to be, and we're now beginning to understand things under the aspect of eternity. But in reality, this is not the case. Even if, in Nadler's words, this knowledge and the eternal joy and love that it generates may be obscured by the onslaught of inadequate ideas that so occupy the mind in this lifetime, covering up on that loving gem of the pure eternal mind. In truth, this state, this love, this gem, is subject to neither birth, death, nor decay. It can neither begin nor end, nor be increased nor diminished. It always is perfect and eternal and immutable, much like the eternal object of its love and contemplation, God or nature. These are just some of the ways that Spinoza himself describes this state of mystical awareness, or sorry, I mean this uh, intuitive awareness, this intellectual love of God, in which the mind sees instantaneously and deeply into its own essence, and consequently into the eternal infinite essence of nature and God. If you think this sounds awfully similar to the way that many describe what's been called a mystical experience or mystical awareness, I don't blame you. Spinoza, in the second half of his fifth and final chapter of the Ethics, plays his final move, uniting his metaphysics, epistemology, and psychology in this concept of amor die intellectualis, and in doing so proposes a rational, logical, and intuitive path to eternal salvation and blessedness. In this thought we find a strange and unexpected but duly appreciated near-perfect merger of science and mysticism, philosophy and religion, all in service of liberating the mind and uniting the individual with the whole, the mind with God. To summarize the case we've made here, we looked at the content, methodology, emotion, extent, and qualia of Spinoza's third kind of knowledge and its concomitant intellectual love of God. First, the content of this knowledge is nothing less than the totality of existence and all of its interrelationships perceived in each and every one of its particulars, very mystical. Secondly, the cognitive methodology of acquiring this perception is more than rational. It is spontaneous, direct, and immediate, also very mystical. Thirdly, the knowledge is no mere logical proposition or equation, but rather a state of mind and state of being, and a loving one at that, an intellectual love for God, mucho mystical. Fourthly, the extent of the knowledge subsumes no less than the very essence of God, heaps mystical, and fifthly and finally, the state of mind that this knowledge brings or consists of is a state of potentially eternal joy, bliss, salvation, and blessedness, and a state which is always truly there, ready for us to tap into at any moment. Not sure if we can get much more mystical than that, and with that we rest our case. To conclude, as a young man, long before he had matured into the colossal author of the ethics, Spinoza wrote a shorter philosophical work, something of a precursor to what was to follow, entitled 
a short treatise on God, man, and his well-being. And it is perhaps with the hindsight of the final chapter of his later ethics that we can understand the curious subtitles that Spinoza gave to this earlier work. The subtitle for the first part of the work is Treating of God and What Pertains to God, and the second, which I'd like to draw your attention to, startlingly reads Treating of the Perfection of the Human so that they may be in a position to become united with God. It may have taken a few decades for Spinoza's clear and rational guidance on how one may be in a position to become united with God to fully unfoil, but to me it seems that it was surely worth the wait. Spinoza, one philosopher among hundreds of other philosophical mystics, monists, and non-dualists, although few as cogently and loosely as he, argued that there cannot be a multiplicity of substances as would be metaphysically necessary to place an ontological separation between God and nature, spirit and matter, body and soul, because substance slash God is infinite and eternal. There is neither any space nor time which can be absent of substance, nor that can be other than God. The human that comes to know this and experience this discovers not only the unity of all being, but more profoundly the love that exists eternally that unites all being, a love for the all that is, an intellectual love for God. However, as Hugh Margulies writes, unlike some mystics who believe that through spiritual practices one can effect a merger of the one and the holy other into a single being, since for Spinoza all is one, there is therefore no merging of the human being into the transcendent entity we call God, nor is there the abolition of the self into a larger, all-encompassing no-self, because they are already all substantially one. Always have been, and always shall be, the only thing that can change is that we can now become aware of our fundamental unity and our natural divinity. Whether or not you were persuaded by this presentation of Spinoza's mysticism and believe that with this slight excavation and comparison that we've unearthed a deeply philosophical epistemological mysticism bursting through the rigid mathematical logic of Spinoza's Latin prose, What's clear and indisputable here is the beauty and clarity of his vision, his desire to guide each of us away from our distracted, fragmented, alienated perceptions of reality and states of mind, and embrace instead a focused, directed, integrated, unified vision to encompass the beauty and perfection of this infinitely complex universe, the beauty of God, and to find our own nature written therein, and hers in ours, and this for Spinoza is mankind's highest calling. What he proposes is certainly not some type of escapist mysticism, one which belittles the material world in its flight towards the absolute or transcendent, but instead one that sees the fundamental indivisible unity between matter and spirit, body and soul, world and God. As in the delightful words of the novelist John Berger, those things which are ordinarily seen as contrary are beautifully resolved by Spinoza, who shows that it is not a duality, but in fact, an essential unity. The mysticism which Spinoza must describe to, if any, is, as in the words of the brilliant Anglican scholar Evelyn Underhill, no more and no less than the art of union with reality. Let us close this series, then, with the very words that Spinoza invokes to close the fifth and final chapter of his ethics, the very last sentence of his life's great work, even if the way I have laid out to lead to this result of true acquiescence of the spirit may seem exceedingly difficult, nevertheless it can be discovered. And of course it is difficult, for what is found so seldomly must be hard to find. 
For, if salvation were ready at hand, and could be found with little effort, how could it be possible that almost all neglect it? But indeed, all things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. Thank you for watching. Keep seeking. And thank you to our Patreons who support this channel financially. It is with your help that we are able to keep this going and keep the quality steadily improving. Thank you so, so, so much. Keep seeking.